0: Welcome to Allocation Disorder. I am Sam Stasekel, joined, as always, by my friend and colleague, Paul Tenorio. Paul, we have a pretty MLS-y. We have a pretty Allocation Disorder-y show. We have some kind of like, we have, should we call it like a set piece? Yeah. We got a set piece planned for you guys. A
1: couple of them. Yeah, I think we're just trying to, trying to lean a little bit back into the origins of Allocation Disorder, which is the extreme nerdiness over which we initially bonded, Sam, and our love of the, the dumb rules that exist in MLS and and the fact that we have sadly devoted a portion choice. of our lives to getting to know those rules and regulations and, and write about them and embrace them.
0: <laughs> yes. So we are going to start with, with one element that was in the news this week. Um, Giorgio Chiellini, uh, LAFC, have made him an offer. Vancouver Whitecaps also interested, of course, legendary Juventus and Italy. Defender, 37 years old. Uh, starred for Italy at the Euros. Last summer was one of the, their key players as they, they went on to win that tournament. Of course, they are not going to the World Cup, sadly for them. Two straight missed World Cups for Italy. If you think the USMNT has it bad. My God. Um, anyway, that's poor, neither here poor nor Poor Michele Giannone. So Sorry little... to
1: interrupt you, but shout out to Michele.
0: Yeah, I know. We're going to have a little discussion about MLS and the whole narrative about Retirement League. Missed my air quotes there. There they are. Um, And whether or not that's actually accurate or not. Um, And then we're going to have kind of a little back and forth debate, rat-tat-tat, for three like most influential, most impactful uh, signings in MLS history, but like not in the traditional Three of our favorite
1: impactful signings.
0: There we go. We're going to put our spin on it. So so a fun show plan for you guys today. Let's start with Chiellini, Paul. Uh, we reported earlier this week with Felipe Cardenas that, that LAFC have made him an offer. He is set to leave Juventus at the end of the current season, which is just in a couple of weeks, over in Italy. Um, it wouldn't be a DP deal if he's if he's with LAFC. He would be a TAM player, so that's interesting. I think if Vancouver get him, and, and they, are apparent, they are interested according to what I've been told and what Felipe has been told... They would need to get his discovery rights from LAFC before they could sign him. But I think if they get him, maybe that contract would be a DP contract. That would not that would not be surprising at all to me. Um, so the terms could be a little bit different there. So we'll see how that shakes out. But a lot of the comments that I saw on our article on Twitter were kind of like, "Oh, MLS retirement league. How is this gonna guy guy gonna be able to keep up?" And it doesn't even make sense for for MLS for for LAFC at this point. Um, And so, Paul, I mean, what what do you make of that reaction first on a granular level for LAFC and and does that move make sense for them as a club and then kind of on a global MLS, you know, retirement league level and whether or not on a
1: granular granular level, I think it makes plenty of sense you know, especially if it's a TAM deal. You don't have to worry if it's not a DP contract that it's going to be taking up a a coveted slot for you. And TAM and GAM is more prevalent in the league in general and is going to become even more so over the next two seasons with the new CBA. So I understand what they're doing. They're trying to bring in a veteran presence to help organize them defensively. And, um, you know, what it reminds me of, Sam, is actually this this is a deep cut here, but one I think you're pretty familiar with. But it, it kind of reminds me of when the Chicago Fire signed Arnie Friedrich. Ooh, and, okay. and having Arne in the back line essentially turned Austin Berry into MLS Rookie of the Year.
0: That and a very slick marketing campaign, if
1: I remember yeah. correctly. Yeah, and and was, was Austin Berry, um, you know, did he become a regular MLS pro? No, he went down to the USL level. And and I think that shows the impact of having a really smart veteran center back next to a younger MLS player. And LAFC has a young center back who they would pair with Chiellini. And I. so, Mama on Dufault. that level, I think it makes sense to, yeah, Mamadou Fault to, to have that pairing together. Um, but I also think Arnie Friedrich's impact shows that a good veteran center back can still be useful. And, you know, going, pulling back to the idea of retirement league, the, the notion of retirement league at this point, in my opinion, is about insecurity. For MLS fans and for people who don't know MLS at all. If you look at the statistics, it's simply not true. There aren't a ton of signings of players of this age and older over the last five, six, seven years. And in every league around the world, teams sign veteran players. And that's just a part you you sign older players just as much as you sign younger players across an entire league. So you have to get rid of that insecurity and just recognize that it's okay to occasionally sign a 36 or 37 year old.
0: Or a 33, 34 year old, for that matter. Right. Um, are, sure. are, are they calling you right now? Is, is somebody. Yeah, uh, sorry,
1: I forgot I put my that, ringer on. Was but that
0: Chiellini? Who has it's their My phone? dad,
1: he probably has opinions about Chiellini.
0: <laughs> there you go. Um, I think that's a fine, Paul. I think, I think you have yeah, to be for fine sure. for that. Um, I think Chiellini makes some sense for LAFC. We mentioned Fall. Uh, Mario is the other center back that's been playing a lot for them this year. They, of, co- of course, are leading MLS. Um, Eddie Segura is coming back soon. He had an ACL last year. He's been one of the better center backs in the league when, he, when he's played for LAFC. So I don't think they really need... Another center back. Chiellini would definitely help those guys. Most of, you know, Fall is, is very young. Segura's in his mid-20s. Mario's kind of late 20s. Um, so I think he would help provide some stability. I don't think he would be like an every-game starter. They could kind of do load management with him, like we see with some guys in the NBA from time to time. Um, but everything in MLS is about opportunity cost. If you give Chiellini a million or a million and a half dollars a year, that's a million or a million and a half dollars a year you can't give to somebody else. And I think LAFC are pretty well situated in other spots on the field, so I wouldn't hate it. Um, but that has to be part of the calculus too. Um, I do think he would do pretty well for them though. I don't think he's passed it by any means. And is he the fastest guy in the world at this point? No, but like I think he would be able to manage just fine. There are plenty of forwards that can run in Serie A and he played there quite a few times for Juve this year. On the notion of retirement league, I actually did some research on this, Paul. I went and I, I, I googled some things. Um, and the, the big retirement league signings that we think of, most of them have been pretty good in MLS. I think there's a perception that these guys come here and they're out to lunch and they're not trying and they don't give a crap and they're not good. That's not really true either. There have been some failures. Um, Matuidi, Higuain in Miami in recent years, notably, uh, Steven Gerrard, when he was with the LA galaxy, Rafa Marquez, uh, Andrea Pirlo was not at his best for most of the time that he was with NYCFC. But then on the other side of the coin, you got Robbie Keane, one of the best players in MLS history for what he did with the Galaxy. Zlatan, he did all right. (laughs) David Beckham, he did fine. Uh, Thierry Henry, again, David Villa, Drogba, Kaká, Nani, I think um, actually a really good example of a guy who came in and and kind of helped change the culture of a club. Um, Tim Cahill, back in the Red Bulls days with, with Thierry Henry. Wayne Rooney, Um, even Chicharito, after a really rough first year, (laughs) has bounced back nicely over the last year plus for LA. And then, you know, another one that people think about as a, a failure, Frank Lampard was actually quite good when he played. He was just injured a lot for NYCFC. So I think most of these guys have come in and done pretty well for the most part.
1: Yeah, and it, it varies, right? I was in Chicago when Schweinsteiger was signed. Yeah, Schweinsteiger, and he, there you go. He immediately changed things for that fire team and, and led them to the one good season that they've had in the last, like, 12 years. And it was directly tied to him signing Blanco, and playing Blanco, well. another one that came in and
0: killed it for the fire.
1: Yeah, so, you know, there is a usefulness again here. It is not weird for a team to sign somebody over the age of 30. And... It's okay that these stars from Europe want to come here and play, and it's okay if they are effective. But you know, signing a Gerrard and having that be a flop, or Matuidi, or Higuain, there might be some signings that you can kind of see the writing on the wall a little bit. I think the the way MLS functions now is different than when it funked how it functioned when Beckham first came. And by the way, Beckham was like thirty one yeah, when he, he signed. Yeah, he wasn't that old. Yeah um and had kind of a long european stint after he left the galaxy um not long just a year PSG. But i thought it was longer than a year. Of PSG, but either way even six months actually he he you know I, I think it's a little bit different it's a more physical league and i think the um attacking level has gone up significantly um but i think that you know again if the player fits you know, you're, you're taking a risk with every signing. The risk goes up on these DP signings, of course, but think about how many DPs have been missed that aren't, you know, well-known names. And so, I don't know, man. I, again, I think that this is kind of a normal thing. We don't blink an eye when these players move within Europe down a couple levels or across to another, you know, another country. Um, it becomes a big deal when they come here. And again, I think that that is tied to this insecurity that exists about, the way people think about MLS and the way people talk about MLS. And as long as the structure of the league isn't built around signing these star players, the way I feel like it was more structured that way in the NASL in the early days of the NASL. And really when backup came as well, as long as that's not the structure of the league, I don't think it's problematic. Um, yeah. That's my opinion.
0: I would agree with that. And I think it adds some variety, right? And I think there are enough models. There are enough different things around MLS at this stage that, It works fine. I think you mentioned, even when Beckham came, right? Those were the marketable guys. It was Beckham, it was Henri, and they didn't come. They weren't ancient or anything like that. I think they were both 31, as a matter of fact, when they signed with MLS. But it was very clear that this was like the last stop for them. Um, That's not really the case with some of these guys anymore. Um, Although it is the case for some, right? But when you think about the more marketable stars in the league, Carlos Vela, right? He came when he was 27, 28 right in the middle of his prime. Um, so that's a yeah. big,
1: big... Jovinko. Jovinko was a good example of that, yeah. of going out and finding a player that was in their prime and being willing to sign them. And again, you know, David Villa was an MVP in this league. Yeah. you know, T- turns I, out these guys are really good at soccer, like I, even I think, when they are old. Right. Like, I think I mean, like Kaká, at- as an example, like part of it is how you build the roster around these players. Like Kaká was the best player and the youngest team in MLS. So you have an, a player who's known for his vision and his passing and playmaking, and he's looking to play balls into spaces where no one else is running. And so you've taken away some of the effectiveness of Kaká by not kind of building the right structure of high quality players around him. And I think that's where the difference is with like a Nani or a David Villa, you know, even though Pirlo wasn't at his best and Lampard was injured all the time, if you can find the right players that kind of bridge the gap between the best superstar players and everyone else or if you find the right superstar who
0: maxi morales served him plenty of balls
1: yeah exactly (laughs) or you know you find a player who kind of does things can do things individually i think nani is an example of that beating guys one-on-one serving crosses scoring goals zlatan certainly an example of that Mm -hmm. you know that gives you a little less of a dependency on that but if you're going to be signing the kaka types how you build the rest of the team matters as well but he was still a really good player you know, his legs, you could see the impact. Again, I was in Orlando for Kaká's first year, and so I saw him up close a lot. And I would never have said, like, oh, like, what a bad signing. Kaká's, you know, pat- he was still had so much quality. And, like, I, the best example of that probably was watching him in the MLS All-Star game where he was surrounded by good players and was, like, the best player on the field Yeah, in that All-Star Tottenham, game. Right? Against Tottenham, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, out in Denver. I do want to spend a little time on Zlatan on here. Um you know, speaking of guys who weren't necessarily surrounded by a ton of excellence during their time in MLS, I think he would fall into that category. Some could make the argument that you know he single-handedly staved off uh, like complete disasters for the LA Galaxy, um, finishing like bottom, bottom of the table, as opposed to being on the playoff bubble when he was there. But you know, when you think about a retirement league, he's gone back. He went back to AC Milan, of course, after he left LA following the 2019 season. And he has, let me see here, 23. He has 33 goals and 10 assists in 59 games in Serie A since he went back. Like, obviously, the guy still had it. Um, he's He put up insane numbers in MLS, but those are still pretty insane numbers that he's putting up for now a team that's right there at the top of the table in a title race with, with Inter Milan heading into the last couple of weeks of the season. In Italy. So, yeah, I I don't know. I think, Paul, we do plenty of bagging on MLS and some of the structures. But the notion that guys can come here and just dominate without trying, I think is false. And I think it's been proven false over the years. So, Chiellini, beware. It's not a vacation. You can't just hang out at Alessandro Del Piero's restaurant in L.A
1: expect to succeed <laughs> the number of times i've tried every time i go to la for any assignment i try to get del piero to agree to an interview with me at his restaurant in la and they always say yes yes we'll do it and then i get to la and they just totally ghost me so del piero chiellini if you're listening i will meet you what, at what del are you Piero's gonna restaurant. interview him about like the menu why are you in la what's your life about what are you doing The place. there's this great um Pickup game that I've been wanting to write about in LA. That's got like a bunch of former pros, both American professionals and European pros who now live in LA. And they play like every couple weeks. They everyone gets like a call or a text, and they go and play at this facility. And I wanted to write about that. And Del Piero goes to that game. So there's, I don't know. We'll see. You just that's, you, that's you just like wanted my... to
0: play in that game. That's what you wanted to do.
1: Oh, if I go to write about it, I'm definitely jumping in on the game. Are you me? <laughs> I mean, like Sadorf has played in it. I mean, there's. Is this the yeah, Stu Holden one? Stu Holden plays yeah. in it. Alexi plays in it. Alex Morgan has played in it. Um, a lot of, yeah, if you're an LA area former player, I mean, you're on the text chain. And, and yeah, certainly if, if I went to cool. write about it, I anyway. was going to jump in there. Yeah. All right.
0: <laughs> um, all right. Well, MLS, we've decided not a retirement league. Um, there you go. Final verdict. Um, we'll see
1: if Chiellini can be Arnie Friedrich. We'll see
0: yeah and lead lafc to i mean what did the chicago fired you in 2012 or 2013 when he was there narrowly missed the
1: playoffs listen i think they made the playoffs one year with arnie friedrich there
0: Uh, they didn't make it in 12 or 13 they almost made it in 13 last day of the season that's right they needed Goal a differential win. they needed a win i think at red bull and red bull needed a win for the supporters Shield, and i think red bull beat them like five nothing Thierry Henry, game,
1: a, Thierry Henry scored a great goal on that match. If I, I, I remember. just remember Klopas tells me that they came down to the last season on goal differential, and, but like the game before, like, McGee had hit the crossbar on a penalty kick or something like that, and that's what put him in that situation, and he always mm. gives McGee crap about it, even though McGee won the MVP that season. So. He did.
0: Um, all right. Well, anyway, we're going to take a quick break. Um, we're going to hit the crossbar and lose out on goal differential. We are going to come back with, with a discussion about some of our favorite I don't even know. Favorite's the wrong word. We're going to talk about MLS signings that have mattered in different ways over the years. Uh, Paul and I have each picked out three. Stay with us for that discussion. Welcome back to Allocation Disorder. Paul, it's time for the first set piece of the show. Um, I, what's, I'm struggling to describe this. We talked about it yesterday. We both know what we're trying to do. But, but can you put it into words for the people?
1: Yeah, I think the idea was to talk about some of the MLS moves that we've liked over the years that we appreciated. And, you know, originally we were talking about what are the best signings or best trades that we that we rated. And then we decided the better way to do it was maybe signings that we appreciated for kind of the avenues that they opened up in Major League Soccer or the inno- innovative ways that the deals were done or or kind of um, maybe change the league a little bit. So I think all of these signings are going to be a bit different in how we talk about them. For me, some of them are, for, uh, for you, some of them are transformative in kind of what they did to the league. For me, some are like some, you know, kind of semantics and and maybe a little in the weeds. Um, and, you know, one of them is kind of an obvious type of structure of a deal. Um, but, you know, the idea was just kind of moves that kind of stand out to us in our minds about roster building or about, things that change the league and 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 why we like them. All right, Paul,
0: I'm going to start and I have a question for you as I start. Um there's one country in particular that has dominated the attacking third in major league soccer over the years. What country do you think that is? Argentina. It is. You're correct. Good work, Paul. Way to go. Gold star for you today. You still still have to pay that fine for that phone call earlier, but you're slowly redeeming yourself. I can't believe yourself. I had my ringer on. And there, so you know, we think about Argentina and we think about Argentines in MLS. You think about Diego Valeri, Javi Morales, Nacho Piatti, Sebastian Blanco. Currently, Zelayan, Reynoso, Driussi, uh, Maxi Morales, uh, Federico Iguain from the past. All these guys, Best Eleven type, MVP type, um, hugely, hugely impactful. A lot of them MLS Cup winners. Um, some of the best players in league history. And there was one that, in my opinion, kind of really started it off. There was Christian Gomez in D.C. United from 2004 to 2007. Um, kind of D.C.'s last good era, if you want to think about it like that. They traded him, and then they started missing the playoffs almost immediately. Uh, but for me, the one that really kicked this off was Guillermo barros with the Columbus crew. And basically, since he arrived in Columbus in 2007 there's kind of been an uninterrupted line of Argentines coming through the league all over the place. Mostly, mostly as number tens, um, some guys on the wing uh, and, and dominating and Scalotto absolutely dominated, led the crew to MLS cup and Supporter shield uh, during his time in Columbus under Ziggy Schmidt um, was a high profile guy when he came in a little bit on the older side, but huge profile in Argentina um obviously people that are newer to MLS remember him for his coaching stint with the LA Galaxy which didn't go great. Uh but he was an incredible player in his day and really since then like I said uninterrupted line of guys coming from Argentina and coming from like a select clubs in Argentina as well, Lanus in particular, uh where Guillermo Barros also coached. <laughs> um so kind of a, I, that, that one for me opened up that pipeline in a really serious way. Um, there have always been Latin American attackers in this league, but that one kind of like, okay, MLS is in Argentina in a real way. And that to me is the starting point of that. So that's, that's my first choice. What do, you, what do you make of it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's been a really important transformative thing for the league. You know, when you think about the players that came after Scalotto, especially, and, and the way that they changed the league. Um, the way that they changed. And, and what's funny is the price point back then was way different. Yeah. Um, well, it Sam, had to be. W- w- what was the price point at, at RSL when they um, when they signed... Uh, Javi Morales. I'm, Javi Morales. I mean, it's got to be...
0: Yeah, when you know. he came in in 2007, I can't imagine that he was making more than $250,000 a year.
2: And, and I don't... And yeah, he changed I don't them. know if there was
0: a transfer fee. It took him a couple of years to really kick into gear in Salt yeah. Lake. But yeah, he changed them. And I remember... You know, I was talking to somebody about this the other week at MLS Cup, I think in 2013, or maybe it was the 2011 Champions League final. That's what it was. Uh, he was a designated player. I think he was the lowest paid designated player in MLS out of like roughly 40, um, under 350,000, slightly different world that we live in today. (laughs) Um, but yeah, much different price point compared to, you know, the most recent Argentine import Tiago Almada. 16 million dollar transfer fee for atlanta united this past winter
1: well and that and that's what stands out to me is just kind of when you look at the line of players like to your point sam there's been all of these different players from argentina who have had a big impact in major league soccer um and and of course that's changed the price point and it's changed the dynamics for mls teams when they go scout in argentina it's a bit harder to to find players of value um, because the the fees get, I think, inflated. Oh yeah, pretty and quickly. the profile
0: of players different
1: too. Yeah, for sure that they're shopping for yeah. certainly. But I I do think that um, you know those those have been important players in, in changing the perception of the league too in South America. Um, when you when you sign players now, you can they they talk about oh I watched what Diego Valeri did because Diego Valeri was a big name at the time that he left. Yeah, you know I I watched what uh you know. And Diego Valeri, by the way, watched
0: what Javi Morales did, a former teammate of his back right. in the day.
1: And so that, that creates a, a, a direct line for these players to have confidence that they can go to MLS and succeed, have a good life the way Valeri did, and, and stay in Portland as long as he did, um, or try to follow—he's not Argentinian, but he had played in the Argentine League, um, Miguel Amirón— who left Argentina, went to Atlanta, and took that step to the Premier League. Now, that, that path hasn't been replicated, and I think neither of us chose Almiron because I think Almiron is probably the signing that hurt the league the most in some ways, um, which maybe could be a totally different well, segment. Let's,
0: all right, well, let's stay here for a second because I yeah. didn't choose him because I thought it was too obvious. But Almiron, obviously incredible player, huge transfer fee when he went to Newcastle United, in, in many ways is the absolute ideal in terms of what you're looking for from a young designated player signing or even a U-22 signing if you're getting that person on the, the older edge of that spectrum. Um, but, Paul, why, why do you say it was almost a bad thing? This is a guy who's briefly, right, he only had two years in
1: MLS, but had one of the best two-year runs of anybody in league history. I don't I don't think kind of a bad thing. I think it was a bad thing, period. I mean, this, this guy was, you know, it's like if you bought a lottery ticket, like a scratch-off, and you won – and you were like, I'm just going to keep buying that lottery ticket because that's the way to win $100,000 or to make $100,000. Like, Almiron is the best signing that's ever happened in this league, in my opinion. And it's not going to happen again. Or it's going to be very difficult to replicate. And I think a lot of MLS teams saw the success of of Almiron. I think MLS HQ saw the success of Almiron and said, that's what we have to do. We need more Almirons. And they're right, but Almirón is a special player. He's and an it's, outlier. He's an outlier, and to try to replicate that signing is is it's crazy. Well, I don't think it's crazy to try to replicate it. No, but you that's have the to goal understand. For you got to shoot for that. Yes and no. I mean, you have to understand that first of all, he was signed for eight and a half million dollars, so he wasn't even one of these like crazy through the moon. But at the time, I mean, at that time, that was that's a significant in the right. History. So. Yeah. You're already you're already in this this place where you're you're signing a player who's been successful in two different countries. You're paying a good amount of money for him and then he came in and he hit I mean like he just kind of accelerated in his development over those 2 years. The right system of play, the right coach coaching him, the right striker playing with him, who by the way in my opinion is maybe one of the st- top 10 best signings in MLS history and Joseph Martinez for what he was bought for and what he ended up producing for Atlanta United. So you have two of the best signings in league history happening on the same team at the same time. And I just think that the expectations got skewed and and the the belief that, th- that this was replicable in any sort of anything approaching a regular rate, I, I think kind of took over some of the thinking in the league and it, it informed to, I think it in my opinion, it just – it changed kind of what the expectation was for every player who got signed after Almiron. Yeah. And that was where the problem started. I do is, wonder
0: though. I do wonder if if how much changed expectations at clubs and at the league and how much changed expectations for people like you and me and yeah. other members of the media and fans. For right? fans especially. I think and, that's and, the
1: biggest impact was fans. But I yeah. do think that the league felt like, okay – this is the right path. And I, I don't disagree that going and trying to find younger players or in your prime players is smarter. But by the way, Ron wouldn't have been a U22 initiative player. Probably no. the best and most important signing in league history wouldn't have qualified as U22. I don't that's, think that's in that's age fine. or that's money. But fine, though. But, but my thing is, like, why are we creating... Uh, anyways, uh, you know how I feel about young money. I just <laughs> think it's restrictive for no reason. And it increases the risk level for no reason. And it's going to make it harder for teams to find successful players and be committed to player. To, they're, they're going to have to do something that they've not shown that they're capable of doing yet, which is develop players from a young age, yeah. um, foreign players. But, you know, I just think in that just, he just changed the perception of what people expected anytime you signed a player from South America. And that's actually been true in Atlanta, too. I was going to say, I think the change has happened more in Atlanta than anywhere else. I mean, because they've continued to sign people and he's they've actually had to replace Um, Amirone, right? You're actually actively replacing that player. And so the expectations were huge on Barco, who was super young. And, you know, I thought certainly didn't live up to his expectation for the price point and what people the hype around him. But I thought was a good MLS player and has been very good. And And then Pithy is the big one where, you know, I got that one the most wrong I've ever been about a player. South American player of the year came here and was a disaster. Um, Disaster is harsh. He was, he was. If you're going to call Barco a good
0: MLS player, you can't call PT Martinez a disaster.
1: Pity was more of a disaster in my mind than Barco.
0: Fair enough. But,
1: but either a, way. There's a
0: wide gap between good and disaster. I just wonder
1: when. <laughs> I mean, how long will it take before we see the next Miguel Almiron? Like, I think it's going to be a while still. Probably.
0: Um, I mean, that, that's a because, rare kind of signing.
1: I mean, think about even like Rui Diaz or Lodero, who are. Elite, 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 elite MLS players. They're still different than Almiron.
0: I mean, Ro- Diego Rossi, sort of in that camp, not not to quite to that level, right? But like a guy that there, did will, well be more, and and there will be more. There will be more
1: Diego Rossis.
0: Yeah, I think. Ta- there Talis Magno, maybe some potential for this. Um, super young, so he's got some ways to ways to go. And to like
1: start. twice the price, right? I mean, no, all of those. Things I think he during. was.
0: I think he was eight million as well.
1: Okay. well, there um, you
0: go. Anyway, Paul, Miguel runs not even on either of our list. Yeah, he's
1: not on our list. Um, who who you got here? Who are you start. Well, with? this this kind of keeps it on a the theme. I'll start with kind of uh, what I think is, you know, people listening to this who actually work in the business um, will laugh and be like, "Yeah, thanks, Captain Obvious," but I really I picked the Archer and Milton Valenzuela signings from Columbus in back to back years. Um, Archer came first. Wait, he was 20- you picked two signings for one well, choice? I, I picked Artur because he came first. But I, I think there's a little bit of a difference in that. Arthur was 24 and Valenzuela was 20. So, it, you know, th- those both four years matter. Loan, initially? But both came on loan. And that's that's where I want to stay. Is that both of these players came on loan with an option to buy. Both of those options to buy were not crazy. Um, about a million to a million and a half for those players. And I thought it was a really smart strategy from a Columbus budget team. At the time, it's not the same budget as the current Iteration of Columbus with its current owners, but under pre-court at the time, they weren't spending a lot of money. Greg Berhalter was the before, coaching technical before director. Before they
0: were VIP, yeah.
1: And this was a lower risk way to sign a player, and the market that they were shopping for was different. And I think when you look across MLS, you can find good pros at this price point and in this strategy. And no surprise, the team that's kind of taken advantage of this route more than any other, or has used this. Strategy more than any other is Orlando City. Um, Ricardo Morera is the technical director there. He was uh, working under Greg Berhalter in Columbus when they signed Artur and when they signed um, Milton Valenzuela. And you know, it's not anything that shakes up the world, but I do, as I just ranted about, think that so much of the focus and so much of the goal in in a lot of these signings going to South America are based on these higher price points are looking for players who are going to be the next Miguel Almiron or even the next Lodero or, you know, pick star player, Castellanos or whoever, who, by the way, is another example of a player who came for a very low amount of money and has, well, there's always some a bit built-in
0: of, in advantages there. Yeah,
1: there's a little bit of, you know, there's the city football group thing, which is why I didn't use him. But I just think that this is a pathway that um, can be used effectively. I think Orlando City has shown that, um, you know, you look at a guy like Schliegel, who Rodrigo Schliegel, who came in on loan, a $500,000 option to buy. Antonio Carlos, uh, another center back who came loan option to buy. Andres Perea, who hasn't been like, these aren't guys who are transformative players. And Perea's young, and he's kind of gone downhill a little bit. He's, he's doing this kind of young player development. But these are players who didn't cost a ton of money and who are regular starters that have helped Orlando City get better. And, I just think that it's, um, that it was a really smart approach by Columbus when they were utilizing it, that you can use it to build up the core of a team and it gives you, uh, a bit more of an advantage of kind of a regular professional who can come in and be a good player. I like the strategy. I think it can be used more in MLS, but it is, it takes two to tango. It's hard to get players on free loans or on cheaper loans, um, with lower options to buy. That's where the work comes in and the scouting comes in. Uh, But it just stood out to me as a really smart strategy from a mid to low budget team that worked well in the case of both Artur and Milton Milton Valenzuela.
0: Fair enough. I kind of like it. I'm I'm trying to think of of guys who came on in a similar way prior to Artur Valenzuela. Did Juninho come on loan to the Galaxy initially? I think he did.
1: Yeah, he might have been. I mean, I think it's a. I think it was a little bit more regular, you know, yeah. prior to 2015. And I think as the more money has come into the system, the the focus has shifted to be. Well, there's like, less of a need to to yeah, go budget. Well, let's like go that. look for yeah. transfers. Let's go look for young money signings. Let's go look for DPS, or you let even let's go look for TAM players you can and, shop and in a different
0: store. Yeah,
1: you've missed a little bit of the focus, and I actually think that this could be a smart strategy for teams that are trying to use young money. Who maybe don't have as big of a budget or want to try to lower the risk a little bit is to look for these deals that are loans with options to buy, to go to countries maybe that aren't chopped in as much um, and try to mitigate some of that risk. But again, it's not easy. It's not easy and it's especially not easy as a major league soccer club in today's world because so much money is being spent by so many of these teams that these conversations are, are growing more difficult for teams to have in South America um, when you're looking for budget players, frankly. Well,
0: I think I think South America is sort of getting tapped out. Is the wrong word, but it's harder to find value there because MLS is, is so active in that market. It's a little bit saturated. So I do wonder where teams are going to turn next to find value. And to me, the obvious answer there is Africa. Um, but scouting there is a different beast than very even scouting in South America. And teams don't really have networks there. But we've seen players come from the continent and, and do well knew uh, who for one uh harrison awful for for another um columbus actually had quite a network there it seemed like for a while uh ambrose iango uh who, who's in league NG, um had success with the red bulls and with montreal before he was transferred abroad so teams have had you know Success going there. Latif Blessing, another player, that came straight from Africa. So I, I wonder if more teams will kind of dip into that a little bit further as we go. All right, Paul. I think it's my turn again, and I'm going to stick with another relatively obvious one. We don't need to spend a ton of time here because I think it's pretty self-explanatory. It's not. It's not quite David Beckham, but I'm picking Michael Bradley. And you know, we think of Michael Bradley a certain way in terms of MLS today. But I think it's important to remember what he was when he came into the league in January in 2014, when he first signed for Toronto FC for $10 million from Roma. He was 26 years old. It was a World Cup year. Few Americans had really ascended to the level that he had of club at that point in time, at least American field players. And he wasn't a full-time starter for Roma, but he was getting a decent amount of playing time still for a club that I believe was at the Champions League. At the time, and so him coming back caused a lot of anxiety among national team fans, and I think among a certain national team coach, Jurgen Klinsmann. If that, I, I can't remember the exact timeline. That was the Don Garber, Jurgen Klinsmann public back and forth, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so there, there was that going on. Um, but he really came in, obviously, completely changed Toronto FC, but I think really changed the perception of MLS in in a significant way. Maybe more so among players than among fans. Because he came in, and then you start to see more guys come back. Josie Altidore, the following year. I think there's zero chance he comes to Toronto if Michael Bradley hasn't taken that plunge the year prior. Maybe zero chance he even comes to anyone in MLS if Michael Bradley hadn't gone, gone back. Um, Javinco, same sort of deal. You have Jermaine Jones coming in l- later in the year that Michael Bradley came in. Even a couple of Mexican players. Gio Santos, Jonah Santos. I don't know if those guys come back if Michael Bradley doesn't make that leap first. And then you have others who stayed, maybe in part because of this. Matt Beasler, Graham Zusi, even Jordan Morris, electing to sign with Seattle instead of go to Germany when he was starting his professional career. Um, so I think it was really important in those ways. And then what he did with TFC in terms of turning that club around, I think goes without saying. So I think a really important move and, and different than Clint Dempsey, who had come six months before in the summer of 2013, just because of where they were in their careers um, and, the, and their timelines and how old they were. Bradley was a lot younger than Dempsey when Dempsey came from Tottenham to the Sounders. So so that's my second one.
1: Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And I think it still highlights to me what people don't realize is the, the incredible value that exists to the national team program the existence of Major League Soccer, the critical role it plays in the success of the national team, the growth of the national team to the point that we see it now with these young players competing in Europe. There has to be an acknowledgement of Major League Soccer's role in that. And the bigger role is in developing the players in homegrown players that have come through academies. Maybe some of them didn't even sign with them teams Weston McKinney, Brendan Aronson, Chris Richards, Tyler Adams, These are all players who started with MLS teams and MLS academies, Giovanni Reyna with NYCFC. Um, You can continue to go down the list and it speaks to the value of Major League Soccer to the national team. And Michael Bradley, the big fear when Bradley came back was that too many players were going to stay in Major League Soccer. But I I think you're right in that it... um, it validated to a lot of people that MLS does have value. Does it it is a place where you can play and be successful and build yourself a career for Michael Bradley. It was different than it is for all of the younger players I just mentioned, but you know, (laughs) I I do think it did create a, uh, it did help to start to change the perception around major league soccer. And I think it also changed the way teams thought about players that they could go after you know that Toronto team, that Toronto front office at that point in time went after three players that were still in their primes. Two of them were American, Michael Bradley and Josie Altidore, and the other was Sebastian Giovinco. Well, and I mean before
0: that, they went after Jermaine Defoe, not quite in his prime, probably, but tail end. Right. And, and Gilberto. At the same time, they signed Michael Bradley in the uh, the bloody big deal, of course. Yeah,
1: and and I think it. I think that. That helped to shift things with Major League Soccer as well. That helped to signal to teams that what we just talked about, the players that you're going after don't need to be 32, 33, 34. They don't need to be where Clint Dempsey was at that point in his career. You can shoot for other players. Um, Toronto's strategy was to overpay for them salary-wise, but I don't think they they would regret it. They had to at that point. Yeah, and I don't think they would regret it. They won an MLS Cup. They were one of the best teams in MLS history, and Michael Bradley took Toronto FC... That those three signings took Toronto FC from being the laughing stock of Major League Soccer to one of the best teams and franchises in Major League Soccer, yeah. and that money was worth it based on that alone. So yeah. I, I agree with you, Sam, in that signing. Um, all right, I'll go to my next one, um, and I'm going to go with the Dom Dwyer trade. Uh, Dom Dwyer oh. was traded from Sporting Kansas this City. This Orlando heavy. This show. To Orlando City. You're talking a lot about your. Home this town. one had this one played an important role though. An important role in Major League Soccer. One point six million dollars. The market still hasn't caught up to this Dom Dwyer trade. I guess Paul Ariola, Paul Ariola, caught up to this Dom Dwyer trade. Um, But why was it important, Sam? For two reasons, I think. Tell me, please. The the first is that this deal was structured over multiple years. Um, That's something that wasn't done with a regular occurrence. Now, now Dax McCarty had just been traded to the Chicago Fire. For $400,000, that was spread over two years. Just a quarter. (laughs) This deal, not only did it spread over two years, but the incentives that were tied into the deal actually spilled into a third year, which had never been done. And only recently was done again with the Paul Ariola deal, because MLS requires that you actually have the money, prove that you're going to have that amount of money for you to be able to trade it. Dallas, obviously... Can show that they'll have the money because of all the money that they've made all the allocation money they've earned from selling players Um, that certainly aided that deal but it was important because that that structure the way the deal was put together changed the possibility of trades in major league soccer it changed the amount of money that you could spend changed how much that money hurt you in one year in these trades And, you know, as I read back my story, which 442 kindly took off of the internet, and I thankfully have in my Word document here of of kind of how this trade was thought (laughs) about. You got the original draft? I have the original draft here. we
0: should auction off like a signed copy or something.
1: Um, You know, what's interesting is that essentially this also kind of ushered in that belief of, okay, you have a player in Dom Dwyer who you could maybe sell to an English championship side for $2 million. But you, out of that $2 million, you're only going to get, at the time, like $750,000 in allocation money. And for Sporting Kansas City, it, it mattered more to get the allocation money. And so to do a trade for $1.6 million brought them $1.6 million in allocation, TAM and GAM. And that was something that was kind of a new way to think about things. When I read through the quotes I had from different MLS executives I spoke to about the deal, um, That's what they said here, I'll read one quote. The interesting thing about what all this TAM money has done is it's created an asset market. MLS teams can't give each other cash, but this is a way of doing that. It's more restricted, but for the first time ever, we know we have enough allocation in the system that these types of things are possible. Whereas in the past, there was no ability to do that. This is the way we move going forward. And I think we've seen that to be true with pretty much every trade that's happened in the wake of this Dom Dwyer deal. Deals were structured across multiple years. Players, you know, you had to consider, could you get more value for a player inside the league in allocation money than you could in transfer fee outside of the league? Paul Ariola. Paul Ariola is, you know, the most recent example of that. Um, and, and I think that, you know, for, for that reason, this was a really important deal in Major League Soccer history.
0: I'm also going with the trade here, Paul. I'm sorry, you go. Just want
1: to say briefly, not a great trade for Orlando City, obviously. No. Um, but an innovative <laughs> did one. Not,
0: did not work.
1: <laughs> but an innovative one. It wasn't a bad uh, game. In the way it
0: was structured. The process was not flawed. The, the result The, the,
1: was the process was not flawed. The price was wrong. The price was bad. And the um that's that's pretty pretty much it. I mean, the idea was right, the structure of the deal was cool and interesting and new. They just overpaid.
0: I'm gonna give an honorable mention real quick outside looking in for me, but another move that happened recently that could be kind of I think a harbinger of, of things to potentially come, and that's the Julian Carranza loan to Philadelphia. Yes. Obviously, he had to move to to Philly from Miami because Miami was in a world of hurt on their budget situation because of the the sanctions that they received. Um, but he's done well with the Union, uh, and in a way that he he has not performed or did not perform for Miami. Um, and so I don't know. I'm curious to see if we, we see more loans between MLS teams going forward as we maybe inch closer to a full on regular transfer market between MLS teams, um, which, as we as we found out in our survey, is something that literally everyone we spoke to was fully in favor of vociferously in favor of. So maybe we'll get there one day, but maybe more interleague loans under the current rules are our next step in that. Paul, my next choice is also a trade. And I think a trade that also, much like Dwyer, kind of ushered in the start of a new era. And that's Kellen Acosta to Colorado. Uh, he moved from Dallas to the Rapids in the middle of 2018 for uh, a pittance, really. He was traded for Dominic Baji and an international spot and in a first round pick swap. Uh, Colorado also got a second round pick. They turned those picks into Andre Shinyashiki and Clint Irwin. The Rapids did, so they got good value out of those as well. Um, but this was really the first big trade that the Rapids made, and they've sort of become the poster child of teams that use allocation money as an internal transfer fund within MLS. And, and they've done it quite a few times over the years. Obviously, Acosta is gone now, replaced by Mark Anthony K, who was traded for a bunch of allocation money last summer. But Keegan Rosenberry, Austin Trusty, Abubakar, Diego Rubio, Giassi Zardis. Most recently, um, you know, they don't have the money to go out and make big transfer signings, but they do have allocation money that they don't have to spend to buy down salaries that they aren't really paying. <laughs> so they can so they can use <laughs> it as, low as, budget as, enough. Yeah, so they can use it as, as as trade assets, and and we've seen other teams sort of copy that model. In recent years, other lower budget teams, Montreal has done a nice job. Georgie Mihaljevic, Kamal Miller, Alistair Johnston, uh, Mason Toy, Ramel Kyoto, all guys that they went out and acquired. Um, Red Bulls, Frankie Amaya, Lewis Morgan, um, Nashville, I think has done a nice job of this a little bit of a different situation. Um, I wouldn't put them in the same budget category as some of these teams, although they started pretty low they obviously get extra allocation because of their expansion status, but they got Walker Zimmerman, Annie ball, Godoy, Dax McCarty, uh, Alex wheel, Dan Lovitz, Dave Romney, these, these guys that make up the core of their team now. And, and you've seen it even more recently, San Jose sort of shifting towards this with Jamiro Montero, uh, and Jeremy Obobese, those trades over the last, I guess, eight to 12 months now. So I think, that Acosta trade is sort of the line in the sand for me of where this practice really started. The Rapids have done it more, I think, than anybody else. Montreal have done it a good amount as well. But you're starting to see more and more teams kind of get into this space. And I think we'll see that continuing going yeah. forward.
1: Well, you can even you don't even have to be low budget to do it. I mean, look at what LAFC did this offseason. They felt like they were missing MLS talent yeah. in their roster. Tajouri Trouty. Ilya, Costa, uh, Ilya Sanchez was a free agent. They traded for Kellen Acosta. They traded Crepeau. for Maxime Crepo. They traded for Ryan Hollingshead. Um, it's a way to to bolster your roster with yeah. guys where you know what they're going to give you. And I agree with you, Sam. It was an important moment. And I want to go back also to what you said about The Konza. difference,
0: if I can just say one, yeah. the difference with LAFC is they, they need to kind of generate that allocation money, right? Whereas Colorado might have more of it on hand. LAFC, okay, you, you have to sell Diego Rossi. Right. And and well, it's not like the
1: only that. for them. It's not the strategy to build their team, but it was a strategy in this offseason to and, fill by holes the way, that were needed.
0: And you can go all the way back, right? They got Walker Zimmerman in a trade as well, back yep. in the day.
1: So. And if you if you look at it, I mean, there have been different teams that are lower budget that find value in these areas in MLS that other teams aren't looking at I think back to the DC United team that finished worst in the league and one of the worst teams in league history and Dave Casper a lot of value on that team. went went full <laughs> in to the re-entry draft of the next year he signed Bobby Boswell he signed a couple other people in the re-entry draft usually there's only one or two guys taken I think they took like three or four or five guys in the re-entry draft that year really? and yeah, and they jumped up this. significantly in the standings that next year. And and it wasn't a sustainable way to build a roster. They knew that some of those guys were older veterans who were only going to be able to give them one or two years. But it was a quick way and a cheaper way to quickly turn over a roster when you don't yeah. have a huge budget from your ownership group. And, and I think Colorado's kind of leveled up on that. And I would also say that they've done that. It's not just um, – Oh, let's use our GAM to trade. They've they pushed heavily into analytics. Fran Taylor is the assistant GM there. His his history is with Stat DNA, which was a company that he helped to start that was eventually bought by Arsenal and was the analytics department for Arsenal for a long time. Obviously, the owners of Arsenal are the same owners of Colorado Rapids. Um, and so this is this is something where they're looking for value through analytics of players who are undervalued in the league. Where that can really help them in certain areas. And then they they target those players and they go and trade for them within the league. It's it's been a really and, and so if you're gonna be if San Jose is gonna push into that space, you know, more aggressively, or Montreal or whoever, you know, there also requires some investment on the back end with the analytics department. Um just oh. worth noting. Yeah. Sam, Can't I thought hurt. about the Carranza trade and you know, I thought about even something like Sebastian Burhalter getting traded or getting loaned out as Loans. his homegrown yeah. player. And I thought like that would be to me, it's like an area that I think would be really good for teams that are building um, and need to fill holes just for a year to, to kind of find bridge players. But the hard part is that is that there are teams, I think there's still a lot of teams that are scared of loaning players because in MLS, you have to have an option to buy on a loan. And so there are a lot of teams that are still really scared of losing a player to another team in MLS, especially yeah. a homegrown so if you're player. A big,
0: if you're a big team that maybe doesn't have space for a homegrown that hasn't played a game yet, you don't want to loan him and lose him for
1: right. You you really it's a reputation thing. You don't want the hit if that player pans out yeah. the way Carranza is panning out in Philadelphia. Miami had to do that. They were looking right. to get rid of money. That's why they did that loan. But I do think that it was incredibly smart by Philadelphia to kind of take advantage of that to look mm-hmm. for that deal. Um, and I do think it would be something that would be more beneficial. And you know, teams are just going to have to understand that that's a risk that you take on. Um, but there, there can be value there if the if the sell price is right, and that, that that's the hard part at MLS is because it's limited allocation money. Those those sell on those buy options are a little bit too low, yeah. um, for what the what the teams are looking for. Okay, I'll finish up my list, and it's a recent one, and it's Albert Rusnak to Seattle Sounders, the first designated <laughs> player to sign as a free agent, and it's no surprise to me that Seattle was the first team to do it. I think that. There was, surprisingly, I had Albert Rusnak as my number one free agent um, on my free agency list when when I first got a hold of the list from the MLSPA. And when I called people around the league the day before the list was published or the day the list was published, the attitude about Rusnak and about some of the other DPs, Blanco was available, was, oh, like, they're not going to sign with somebody else, you know, like – Or, eh, I don't know if they're really worth a DP spot. Like, they're not like a, you know, Rusnak is good, but he's not like a real game changer. And in my mind, it was like, well, you know exactly what you're going to get from him. And if you're a team like a Colorado or uh, San Jose, and you're trying to save money, avoiding paying a transfer fee for a player you know can produce in Major League Soccer, it seems like a pretty good value play to me. Um, Now, Seattle had a built-in advantage. They are a winning club, the the winningest club in the league, and Rusnak wanted to go there partly for that, to go win trophies after playing at RSL for a while as being the star player, but kind of being a fringe playoff team every year. I'm not going to discount that. I know that that played a role for snack but I thought it was really smart that Seattle looked at it as an opportunity. Certainly, they had ties to snack Um in their front office and in Craig their coaching Weibel. staff, yeah. Craig Weibel and, and Freddie uh, Juarez as well, as well, that probably aided. But I just thought in general, people didn't recognize that or, or didn't really truly value how much that immediate pop could give you of somebody where you know what they're going to give you. <laughs> and, you know, credit to RSL, which went and made a real run at Blanco um to try to lure Blanco away from Portland Timbers but I I think that we will see more teams kind of aggressively go after these DPs that become free agents and I just think that it is going to be the thing that eventually starts to open up that transfer market that we talked about because I think teams are yeah. going to start to say hey the you know these free agents are examples of guys we kept in the league because another team valued them more than their their previous team and maybe they would have gone back to Europe there are examples of this that we can get out ahead of by buying them within the league and keeping them instead of having them leave somewhere else. And, you know, I, I think that the move is not necessarily going to be transformative in free agency. I think by default, teams are going to sign DPS in free agency. But I think recognizing the value of keeping guys like that in the league is going to help make the case for opening up a real transfer market within MLS.
0: Interesting. So, Ruznak to me is fascinating because I was actually having this discussion with a source yesterday and we were, Ruznak came up and and he said to me, yeah, I mean, he's good and he's helped them and he was probably their best player in the CCL final second leg and they won. And I'm not trying to discount that at all. It's like already worth it, but he's (laughs) like what their fifth or sixth best player. And he's a DP and they knew he would be their fifth or sixth best player when they signed him. Right. If you want to say Rui Diaz, Ladero, Jao Paulo, of course, you can bump him off the list, I guess, now that he's out for the year. Um, and then depending where you put Morris and on in that list. Um, so it's just kind of an interesting thing. To me, Rusnak makes a ton of sense for Seattle. But he's like a little bit of a luxury kind of player in a way. A luxury kind of signing, I guess, is a better way to put it. Yeah. Because it's 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 a guy, to me who thrives and is at his best when he's a connector, which is what he's playing in Seattle. Um, and he makes others around him better and he elevates the team. He's not going to be a guy that's necessarily making a high, high, high impact in the attacking end for a team like the Sounders, even like he did at RSL where he was taking the set pieces and the penalty kicks. So I don't know. It's just kind of interesting because it's a DP spot. They don't need to make Roldan. on or Morris DPs right in this moment so you can afford to do it. Uh, Jao Paulo came off DP status, so again, you have the space to do it. Maybe they don't have the budget to go out and sign a guy for $7 million and make him a DP, so it makes a lot of sense for what Seattle did, and I think it was a perfect fit because of those reasons. But it is kind of interesting that you can afford to bring him in on a DP deal to be your fourth or fifth or sixth best guy. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know exactly where I'm going with this, Paul, but
1: I don't think I mean, that makes it not an important signing or a good signing. And I think that that's not what, yeah, I no, agree. I, I mean, like, I think that what that person was saying, I guess makes sense, but not really because it, well, but it
0: just, I think it illustrates sort of, okay. If you're a team that isn't as established as Seattle and isn't this rock solid and is looking for more of a spark in the attacking end, do you want to use that last DP spot? Say you have two already on a guy like Rusnak? Or do you want to go out and get somebody that it's not as certain what he's going to bring but maybe
1: the ceiling's a little bit higher yeah but the question it's more complicated than that right because they they were signing rusnak as a two two and a half million dollar investment per year in salary that's it that was the cost and if you're going to go less than that yeah if you're going to go try to find a player who's going to give you a spark as an attacking player, if it's going to be the last DP, maybe that changes the math. But if you're Colorado or San Jose or Philadelphia or just like Ruzneck was at Salt Lake, a Salt Lake who doesn't have a huge budget, signing a player on a free transfer that's going to make around two million dollars yeah. a year and it give all depends. You, it all depends on the individual team, though. It depends. Those on teams are
0: just rattled off. Where is he going to play in Philly? What midfield position is he going to play there? Where is he going to play
1: in Colorado? What well, midfield position I'm, is he going to play? I'm using Rusnak as an example here, and using low budget teams. I'm not saying he's a fit for all of those teams I just rattled right. off, but the point being that there are different types of teams that can that can sign a DP like that, and and what you're buying is one risk reduction because you mm-hmm. know what he can do in MLS, two lower cost because they're a free agent, so you don't have to pay a transfer fee. And that's a significant. Some, some DPs get signed from abroad as free agents too. Sure, but it's a, you know, but that factors in as well. You don't know what they're going to bring, right? That's where that knowing who they are in MLS, and then yeah, maybe it is a luxury. Maybe it is a, a better fit for Seattle as it was, and that you know exactly yeah. where Roosnack fits into your team. You know, you you don't necessarily need to go spend eight million on a winger because you trust Morris and Roldan to be your starting yeah, wingers. Exactly. You bring exactly. in Rusnak because you want him to pair with Joao Paolo, but you also know the attrition that happens at that position. And look what happens. Paulo goes out and Rusnak's there to, to step into an even bigger role as he did in the yeah. Champions League. And so it was, yeah, maybe he's, you could argue the fourth or fifth best player. I don't know if I would rate Morris above him or not, you know, Roldan, certainly, I I think his value to the team is super high, but in that team, in that role for what, you know, who knows what their budget was, but they were, we know that they were trying to win Champions League. And so mm-hmm. that it fit perfectly to what yeah. they were trying to do. And so I have no problem with that signing for those reasons. And I think it also shows the value of those types of players in MLS. And Rusnak is unique because he's a yeah, a, a link play, which is in MLS is a luxury in general. Yeah. But but I do think we're going to start to see. I mean, we were this close to seeing Carlos Vela hit free agency. Like if he hadn't signed an extension with LAFC or agreed to an extension, you know, mm-hmm. how is that going to change? And and how do you value a player like Vela when you look at his injuries and stuff like that? I mean, we're going to start to see because of the decrease in age and experience levels to, to be eligible for free agency, we're going to start to see bigger names. And and I think we're going to see how teams value these players, why they value them that way. And and again, I think this, this is going to push the discussion about, hey, it's important to give MLS teams a chance to keep good players here in the league. And if, you, if this X team might not value that player enough to keep them, that doesn't mean the league shouldn't have a shot to keep them. And yeah. right now, there are a lot of players that they won't have a shot to trade for or keep because... There's just not enough GAM that you can put on the table to make that worth it. And I think the best example of that right now is Miles Robinson. Atlanta United cannot pay him DP money. He's going to want DP money to match what Walker Zimmerman made. But he's going to have to be sold abroad because no MLS team can trade enough GAM. Will
0: he not be eligible for free agency when his contract expires? I don't believe so. I'd have to double check now.
1: He's 25 now. His first year in the league was 17, I think. I'd have to go look, but I'm pretty sure would have to. I don't think he'll hit MLS free agency. I thought it was like 25 and 5, no? Anyway. Paul,
0: we can figure that out during the break. We're going to talk more about Miles Robinson after the break and his unfortunate news, the injury that he suffered over the weekend and how that might affect the USMNT and Atlanta moving forward. We'll keep the third segment short because that second one was long, but I enjoyed it. Hopefully you guys
2: too. Stay with us. Allocation disorder. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan, Graham, and Joe. Just kidding. Welcome back to the final segment of this week's
0: Allocation Disorder. Paul, we were just talking about Miles Robinson. Let's talk about him some more. He suffered a really brutal injury with Atlanta United over the weekend. Ruptured Achilles that will likely keep him out for the remainder of the calendar year, um, which, of course, includes the World Cup. Um, Obviously, a brutal blow for the player, for Atlanta... And for the U.S. national team, because Miles Robinson had become an important part of that group, starting a number of games during qualifying, pairing pretty well with Walker Zimmerman throughout the octagonal. And now they're down one of their more experienced options at that position. Um, So, Paul, I mean, I think first the thoughts on the injury have to have to start with the player and how sad it is
1: for him. Um, But going beyond that, I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I agree with you, Sam. I mean, the first part is the human part. You could see it when the injury happened, when he was pounding the turf. He knew what it meant, and the pain was obvious from what he was missing out on. I can't imagine spending your whole life, career, You're as a kid playing soccer. Everyone wants to play in the World Cup, and he was this close to doing it, and that injury takes takes it away. Um, so I feel just bad for him as a, as a person. Um, but obviously it has a huge impact on multiple levels. It has a huge impact on the U S men's national team and what they do at that position where I think that they were thinner than most people realized. Um, I think it has a major impact on Atlanta United, which has had a flurry of of major injuries to their team and to three of their biggest leaders up the core of their roster. Brad Guzon, Miles Robinson, and Ozzie Alonso all two, out for the season. Two Achilles in an ACL there. Yeah. I mean, brutal, brutal, brutal for, for Atlanta. And it has a huge impact on Miles Robinson and his career. He's going next year was going to be his final year of his contract. Um, playing in a World Cup, going into the final year of your contract, had a chance to really boost his value significantly in the global market. So that's potentially millions of dollars that, that were left all, all on the table at that point in time when the injury happened. But it changes the trajectory now of what the contract talks look like with Atlanta United. It changes the trajectory of what talks look like with teams abroad. Um, and it makes and we it a did lot confirm. more difficult.
0: We did confirm in the break that he will be an MLS
1: eligible for MLS free. He
0: agency will be eligible for MLS free agency. Yeah,
1: but I I think if you're Atlanta United, there's no way you allow him to get there. The new free agency, by the way, is twenty four and five well, years. They don't they don't have full control over that, Paul. Well, they do in MLS. It's not like Miles Robinson has a no trade clause. They can they can trade him that that we know of. But the problem is you need <laughs> <Might>. <laughs> again if you're Atlanta United, you're you're looking at it saying. Man, like we're not going to get our value for Miles Robinson if we trade him in MLS. I mean, the best thing that could happen is is that that you can trade cash at some point or you can or you can sell players for cash. Though so that would that would become interesting. Well, for it Miles depends Robinson. what they value. We just talked about this. Like
0: if they value allocation money more than they value cash, then they get more of it if they trade him within MLS versus transfer. I, I think
1: we've seen that Atlanta United's value is in cash that can be used towards future DP uh signings but uh-huh. they, tr- they traded darling for a lot of allocation either money. way what is the allocation money that is that is worth what is miles robinson worth in allocation money if paul Ariola is worth two million dollars he's worth more than two million dollars well, and there are not I very think, many teams that are capable i don't of doing know though i don't know we know that we know the answer to that question
0: considering what just happened with his injury and we don't know well
1: we, we've like seen aaron long like. come back from it at 29 30 and, and still be a, a highly rated center back in Major League Soccer, probably going to be a candidate to step into the star- – not probably, is a candidate to step into the starting lineup in Qatar for the U.S. men's national team. Miles Robinson is 25 years old, so I think the value yeah. isn't going to drop that much. No, it should. Um,
0: he should be okay. There, there have been significant – kind of increases in the recovery process for this injury over the years we saw with cam Akers in the super bowl aaron long's recovery wasn't too too long he suffered his about a year ago and he was back running around participating fully in training sessions in january yeah so you know Eight months it, i think it yeah. was that he had um so it he should be able to recover but you never really can tell so hopefully he gets back in a healthy way for sure that's that's first and foremost here you mentioned aaron long Other candidates for the US, I think Chris Richards, a lot of attention will be turned to him now um, to see if he can step into that role. If he can stay healthy, he's dealt with injury issues of his own. Um, Cameron Carter Vickers, who sounds like he's coming to the June camp. Um, Maybe, 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 maybe John Brooks, maybe Tim Ream, maybe Eric Palmer Brown. Um, Am I forgetting anybody? Mark McKenzie. Mark McKenzie.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. look. I, I, I just wrote a story about this. I think what what stands out to me after writing the piece is that the, the most there's probably three candidates that I'd feel okay about stepping into the starting lineup in Qatar. It's Long, Richards, and John Brooks. When you get beyond that, it gets a it's fine. It, just that define alone, okay. Well, I, I I trust John Brooks to be able to defend players considering his Bundesliga and World Cup experience. I don't love Brooks and Zimmerman as a pairing. I think it's you know you lose some athleticism and mobility both of those guys are slower um, i think where miles robinson and zimmerman thrived was that zimmerman has the pace and recovery ability ability to operate in space it comp, it compl, or miles robinson richards is the same way i think richards and zimmerman complement each other in the same way that robinson and zimmerman did um but i i trust brooks i he has the experience i trust richards to a to a lesser degree based on experience, but to a higher degree based on his strengths and pairing them with Zimmerman. Also Bundesliga player has played against high level attacking players. And then Aaron long, you know, for me, he's some, in my opinion, the third option, but certainly he had been a favorite for Greg Berhalter and he's played on the international stage, a decent amount played in a gold cup, you know, only played, I think like 30 minutes in qualifying. Um, so not a ton of experience at yeah. that level. Um, but when you look at Eric Palmer Brown, you know just just less experience overall. I'd like to see him continue to develop at twice. He's, he's played a lot there. Yes, yeah, Cameron Carter-Vickers had a very good year for Celtic. But when you talk to people, at, you know, in Scotland who have watched him play, when you talk to scouts who have watched him throughout the season, you know what they say is essentially Celtic held possession. At some of their games, they had eighty percent of possession, eighty ah. percent, and they played so an he was incredibly really, high
0: line. Really busy center back then.
1: <laughs> yeah. And but that what they said was he was very good defensively, especially defending in the box. But when they face teams like Rangers who pressed them high and the Celtic wants to play with the ball a little bit more, Cameron Carter Vickers struggled. He struggled to pass out of pressure. He struggled with his touch. And those are things that are going to be on display a bit more on the international level. So I'm going to say I'm going to wait and see. I did speak to a scout who said that's true, and it separates Cameron Carter-Vickers from the highest level center backs and the, the center backs that that we're going to see from a lot of the European countries and South American countries. But it doesn't separate him that much from yeah, I was gonna the say, U.S. center backs. Also, probably
0: going to be doing a good deal of defending in the box, certainly yes. against England. So you know? you know,
1: let's take it for what it's worth that yeah. ma- that Celtic, the fans look at Cameron Carter-Vickers as one of the players of the season. The coach mm-hmm. is looking for a center back to that can play on the ball a little bit more. OK, so that kind of gives you an idea of where his strengths and weaknesses are. But I do think he's in the mix, firmly in the mix at a center back position that frankly is is lacking a little bit. Um, yep. And 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 yeah, there's just there's major questions now going to Qatar. And I think it speaks to I, I, you know, I was talking to somebody again about this injury and he was just saying like, in general, when you look at the teams that are in the World Cup and you look at their center backs and where they're playing and and what they're being sold for and what their level at, level is this was already a position that yeah and weak. I
0: don't think there were any guarantees that Miles Robinson was going to be starting in Qatar either, yeah for that matter I think if Chris Richards grows how you want him to grow I don't think Miles Robinson would have been starting in Qatar so yeah I mean it's definitely a blow I'm not trying to minimize it but like I agree with everything you just said about this. The, the position, basically. Yeah. So yeah, there's, it's a trouble spot potentially for the U.S. Although those guys performed well in qualifying, albeit against significantly different opposition. Um, Paul, one other note here: uh, turf and MLS. You know, we saw it rear its ugly head with Robinson, with Jao Paolo, both in the last week. Um, Brad Guzan did his Achilles on turf as well. Um, you know, there have been studies. Jeff Reuter tweeted one out. I think that was this week. Um, Just basically about the higher instance of Achilles and ankle injuries on turf in MLS over a period of several seasons earlier this decade. Um, It's just a shame. I think this league is doing a lot of things right, particularly from an infrastructure perspective. Uh, But we now have, I think, six teams that play on turf surfaces. Charlotte, Atlanta, New England, Seattle, Portland, and Vancouver. I don't think I'm leaving anybody out there. Um, It's just it's not great, man. Like it really isn't. Um, and, and people can have arguments over, Oh, this turf is better than that turf or whatever. And, and some of it, it's like, all right, you're playing in a stadium with an NFL team. Like I get it. We saw what soldier field looks like every year in the fall. That's not great either. Um, but I think really for this league to get where it wants to go, it needs to have everybody playing on grass eventually. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think the fact is, if you talk to players, if you talk to coaches, they don't want to be on turf for a reason. It changes the way the game is played. Yeah. Um, and it puts it, them at
0: more risk, And too.
1: The, the players feel that they're playing at a higher risk, that there's more wear and tear. Maybe that the injury doesn't happen immediately, but that there's wear and tear over the, the course of their career. I mean, I think um,
0: anybody that's played on turf even at a recreational level versus played on grass, you feel it
1: more the day yeah. after. I mean, yeah. even you look at, I mean, Kevin Molino did his ACL for the first time on turf. Actually, maybe the second time when Minnesota was playing at their their other stadium. I don't remember when his second ACL was in Minnesota's He trajectory. did the third one on grass yeah. at Columbus's training facility. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it's just, it's not great. And I think also it's limiting to a certain degree um, in the types of players or the, the ceiling of where those teams can recruit. Yeah, Um you think Chiellini wants to go to Vancouver and play on that turf? Right, right. So, um, yeah, I think overall the league would be better without turf. And I think it's funny that they've known this for a long time and that the number of turf fields has gone up. And now the, the conversation around turf from a league level is convincing you that turf is good because look at the crowds in Seattle and Atlanta and the fact that those teams have won trophies, um, which I find interesting. Is because, that the narrative? Oh, yeah. That's certainly the pushback I got when I made commentary on turf regarding Charlotte last year. So, um, yeah, I just uh, – I, I think the reality is soccer is worse on turf and there's no argument against, it, against that. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's not a yeah. valid
0: one. Nope. Uh, I would agree completely. Um, soccer <laughs> soccer is good, but worse on turf. Uh, I think that's a good place to end this show. Uh, we are brought to you by Natural Grass this week, um, as well as other sponsors that Taylor talked about on the commercial breaks. Anyway, I'm Sam. He's Paul. Thank you for listening to Allocation Disorder. Until next week, we'll be back.